Hello and welcome to the final episode of Series 4 of One Foot in the Podcast. Blimey, another series down. It, it still mm, feels so fresh in the memory of starting up the first series a month or so before the lockdown. So this week I am joined by another debutant. It's Andrew Stowe. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Well, <laughs> How are you doing? Very good. <laughs> welcome to One Foot in the Podcast. This is your first first time of being on it. On any podcast, I understand. Is that right? Yeah, this is this is my first go, and I'm genuinely very excited. And not only am I a fan of One Foot in the Grave, I'm a fan of the podcast as well. Oh. It's like a double dream come true. Too kind, too kind. Well, <laughs> it's it's very good to have you on. We're, we're we're reviewing Secret of the Seven Sorcerers tonight. Yeah, final outing for the series. I know there'll be a comic relief and film finale, One Foot in the Algarve, but. For the six-part series, this is it. Where does this episode rank for you in this particular series? So this is yeah, this is an unusual episode to me. This one because it's one that I tend not to re- remember the plot of. Um, I love One Foot in the Grave. I love all the episodes, and you know there's some real good ones in there. But this episode for me doesn't have any of those like big comedy moments that everybody remembers. Um, But I forget this. I forget the plot of this episode, Um, but it contains some really, really great bits. So I think that might just be personal on my side. Um, And, you know, series, you know, this, this series four has some incredible episodes in it. Um, And for me, this one is probably not, probably not the strongest episode, Mm. um, but there's some really nice little bits in there. I don't, I'm not trying to be negative because I love it, Um, but it's, it's not as good as, you know, kind of, of heart as um, hearts of darkness. Yeah. Uh, That's regarded as quite a lot favorite. Yeah. And and the, and the trial, of course. Yeah. And the the trial as well, but you know, this one's got some great moments in it. So I I love it as, as equally as I love many other episodes. (laughs) That's it. I mean, if you're a fan of any sitcom, you don't really have a, you might have a least favorite, but it doesn't mean to say it's rubbish. I don't, I don't think I do have a least favorite episode of One Foot in the Grave. They're all slightly different to me. Um, yeah. but I don't think at any point, none of them are my least favorite. I think I love them all kind of equally. And then there's some that rise above. There's, that's, that's, that's probably the best way to, uh, to describe it, of course. So before we get into talking about the episode, a little bit about yourself then. So, Andrew, you are a auctioneer from Bristol. Is that right? I am. Yeah. For, for my sins, that's, uh, that's what keeps me out of trouble on a daily basis. So what do you specialize in selling? Uh, so we, as a company, so we sell antiques and collectibles, uh, toys, military, that kind of thing. But we're, uh, we're actually very famous uh, for selling comedy, British comedy memorabilia. Perfect. Uh, a, a, exactly. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were very lucky to sell uh, Ronnie Barker's original handwritten fork handles script. Um, and that made kind of international news. Um, and then off the back of that, we then sold uh, the only known surviving original fallen Madonna with the big boobies uh, from a low, a low. Uh, we sold lots of only fools and horses stuff. Uh, we recently sold uncle Albert's will from only fools and horses. Um, and so, you know, kind of that's, we sell a bit of everything, but that's always kind of like the highlights for us is, is for the fools. For first, first of all, Ronnie Parker script, uh, four candles insane. How much did that go for? Uh, so that's all for it was uh, thirty one thousand pounds in total. Um, do you get to meet these individuals who are actually purchasing this item, or, or do they have an agent, or how does it work? Sometimes, in in that particular instance, we didn't. Um, we didn't meet the person who bought it. There was uh, there was an agent acting on their behalf. I know who it was, uh, and I'm not allowed to say. Not that. Allowed to say. To sign a, we had to, yeah, sign a special document because they were quite a high profile person. 
Well, I was going to ask you that might answer my question because I can say with the Fools and Horses gear, the Fools and Horses Society guy. Yeah. I yeah. guess he comes to you a lot to buy stuff or has he um, not? No, not particularly. Uh, I mean, the only Fools and Horses Society is so big and, and have such a far reach that, of course, they're always aware. But it's, it's, you know, I think a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the stuff we've sold has actually been originally from them. So people have bought it from them say 20 or 30 years ago right uh, now the price has doubled or tripled and now they're they're selling it on um it's insane that it is, is insane. It, it is crazy and you know i think british sitcom and british comedy at the moment is at kind of like an all-time high uh if i've got my work hat on um prices have never been better um there's a lot of fans out there at the moment of british comedy do you think that it's largely to do with the fact there's very little decent comedy out generally for, for all your everyone's tastes there's not a lot out is there there's just not a lot to choose from no, there's, you know, on the terrestrial channels especially this i mean for, for, off the top of my head not going out i mean that's been going for about 15 years 12 yeah. 13 years and i can't think of anything in recent yeah. times I mean, kind of like the traditional British sitcom doesn't really exist anymore. It does in good forms, but it's not as popular as it once was. And, and you know, it's kind of being overtaken by like reality TV or dramas uh, and things like that. Whereas yeah. I think, you know, the modern life, the way we all like, you know, we all want the faster life. A little 30 minute comedy should mm. fit perfectly into that lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they, they repeat Dad's Army every Saturday and it still gets like viewing figures higher than another program that was made a year ago. Uh, yeah. To me, that, that screams a massive thing that, you know, these people still want these comedies. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, One Foot in the Grave has always kind of been slightly outside of the mainstream, I think. You know, it's not as, it's not as popular as like Only Falls or dad's army it's always been slightly left field for me it yeah, hasn't it um, yeah a very yeah, cult there's a cult following there because yeah. it isn't like your usual comedies but it was sat amongst studio audience sitcoms of the 90s so it, yeah. it kind of gets disregarded plus the i'm sure there's an element of ageism as well because the main cast members at the time were considered old they're not yeah. old at the time if you know i'm trying to do my bit by doing this podcast just to you know <laughs> good on you i'm not uh, saying i'm not saying i'm expecting a bunch of 21 year olds who would usually watch some sort of netflix drama to watch one foot i'm just trying to find more than anything existing one foot fans who yeah. use the internet who might be new to podcasting and just say look just give it a listen like for old time's sake yeah, but obviously, I would like I love a younger generation to discover it. But in, unless you have Britbox, Britbox isn't as, yeah. from what I know, I understand it's not as big as Netflix. Unless One Foot in the Grave goes onto Netflix, which it probably won't now because Britbox are trying to compete. Probably, and I just don't feel like Britbox appeals to. I could be ignorant, ignorant saying this, but it doesn't feel like it appeals to the younger generation. It's sort of people of our age and older. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of treated One Foot in the Grave. Uh, as like it feels like a secret club and, yeah, and it's it i and i and, and i and i love that about it and i also dislike that about it i think it deserves to be one of the most highly regarded sitcoms i i i met um years and years and years ago so, so i should explain so uh as a kid so when i was like 11 12 uh, i was obsessed with collecting autographs um and so and what that means is so over my like 15 18 years or so of doing this um i've i've been lucky enough to meet a f quite a few members of the cast from various episodes uh and very early on um in that 
kind of hobby i actually met paul merton from one uh from have i got news for you yeah, yeah. and he appears in the final episode of one foot in the grave as a waiter the waiter farming um, guy yeah and i spoke to him about one foot in the grave and he always said this one thing and it sounds kind of uh like ridiculous to say it but it genuinely always stuck in my head yeah. he said that one foot in the grave is the only sitcom that ever genuinely makes you laugh out loud and that stuck with me. I can, yeah, I, I totally get that. And he's right. I can't think of a time where I had proper belly laughs at a sitcom. I mean, we're, we're, you and I are massive Fools fans, and that has its laugh-out-loud moments to say the little, every episode. But I think, for me, that's a comfort blanket comedy. And I regard it? it as the, I regard it as the best. And okay. I, I haven't watched one for as many times as I have Fools. I don't think it's anything to do with that. Sometimes I could watch an episode of Fools and be sort of poker face, but I'm loving it. Yeah. Just like a comfort blank. It's almost like comfort eating, but TV comedy. Whereas one foot are still raw with laughter. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the same with Only Fools and Horses. I always think when we're sat alone watching something, I can, like, like you've just said, I sit there. I won't even like make it make a tiny smile, but inside it's wonderful. I'm cracking. I'm crying with laughter. Exactly. But one foot in the grave has that thing where I will literally laugh out loud. Um, yeah. And no, no other program can do that for me. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, one to... foot in the grave brings so much joy um, yes. than any other sitcom does. I would probably say Faulty Towers will still make me yep. roar with laughter. Yep. And and The Office. Yeah. But I, one foot in the grave is is certainly especially of it of its era one of the yeah. very few that still has that effect on us so you've met some of the kind so you were mentioned before we went live you met gordon peters or you're in touch with gordon peters who played ronnie yep so gordon peters uh i've got loads of stories about gordon peters um i i was in i've been in contact for a couple of years uh, and i hear from him semi occasionally gordon peters played ronnie yeah. uh from ronnie and mildred uh in one foot in the grave the infamous do you the infamous <laughs> the worst horror i think <laughs> they were worst horrible <laughs> yeah um and he's and you know he's lovely he's in his mid to late 90s uh and he's you know he's such a wonderful lovely guy um and and, and you know he He's he's only ever appeared, uh, bless him, in as kind of very small characters in very big things. Yeah. Um, but he adores the fact that people love it and watch it, um, and things like that. So so he's always been a great one. I've you know I've met, I think probably close to like fifty or sixty people that have appeared in the show. Um, so how do you come about meeting? I mean, if you you've met the big man, by that I mean Renwick, <laughs> not even Richard Wilson. He was a hard one to track down. You were saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's such a you know, there's so many threads to the story. Um, so I, I always wanted to be a scriptwriter. Um, so I'm actually a trained scriptwriter. I went to university and I got a degree in scriptwriting. Uh, and so for me, Renwick was always the one. He was kind of like my idol, yeah. um, and and the, the kind of the person I always wanted. And I used to write him letters, just kind of you know, saying how much a fan I was. Uh, autograph requests, that kind of thing. And I could never, ever get one back from him, no matter where I wrote or anything like that. And then uh, through a whole other story, I was very lucky to attend uh, Ronnie Corbett's memorial service in Westminster Abbey in London um, a couple of years back. Uh, and as I was leaving, I spotted him uh, leaving kind of a few rows behind. So I kind of waited uh, for him to pass by and then I kind of spoke to him outside and 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 you know I was completely blown away by how 
uh, how little people recognized him. He was walking past like news cameras from all around the world. And I stopped him and I was like, you know, I've just got to say, you know, I'm a big fan and thank you for all that. Uh, and we must have been stood there for like a half an hour, 45 minutes. Was he, 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 he conversed in chat? He was genuinely wow. really lovely. Because I thought you were going to say he was quite shy and sort of, sort of head down and went thanks and walked off. But he was... The, the fact, I think... Recall Sorry. what he said. Sorry, I, I'm just, I'm in awe. Um, <laughs> what did he I, say? <laughs> so I can remember I, I was stood a little bit outside West, Westminster Abbey uh, and I could see him leaving. I mean, you know, stood next to him was like Stephen Fry, Rob Brydon, Barbara Windsor, uh, Graham Norton. So all of these kind of big famous stars. And he just kind of slipped out with nobody knowing who he was. And I kind of approached him and I was like, I'm really sorry. I was like, but you're David Renwick and I've just got to stop and say thank you uh, for like everything that everything you've done. And he was like, crikey, he's like, nobody ever recognizes me. Uh, and I was like, well, I do. I was like, in fact, I was like, I was like, I've been trying to get your autograph for like a long time. And he was like, oh, he's like, well, you better take it now then. Um, and we stood there and then he introduced me to his wife. Um, and, and, you know, I was just chatting to him about uh, in, in particular on that day uh, in Ronnie Corbett's uh, Westminster Abbey um, Memorial. Um, he famously wrote uh, a lot of stuff for the two Ronnies, particularly mm, for Ronnie Corbett. He did, yeah. Uh, and he wrote he wrote Mastermind sketch where uh, he oh, answers the, the question, question before, before last. last. Yeah. And and as um, as the procession was leading out of Westminster Abbey, that was playing and kind of echoing around the the mass of Westminster Abbey. Uh, and I can remember saying to him, I was like, you know, how does it feel to to have the words you wrote? Mm played uh, in Westminster Abbey at such uh, a sad uh, and poignant occasion and and he kind of you know he was he was I, for want of a better word he was like full of joy that his words meant that much to people um, and I was I was quite genuinely really blown away by how modest he was um, and how lovely he was I, I it's one of my favorite favorite moments in my that life to incredible. actually meet him I, it's um, absolutely incredible what, what I mean the I've I've all but ruled him any of the cast coming on the podcast, but he's the one that would I assume would even like you said you tried to track him down for years for whatever yeah. reasons he didn't get back to you. There could be many reasons for that, but the chance of him wanting to come on a yeah, a little I mean you know podcast, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I always have this kind of idea of him of being kind of like the the lonely man in the office with the computer just slowly typing away and working this magic, mm. and I think. I think that's kind of how he works. I think he is very much um, like a one-man band. I don't think he wants recognition or celebrity no. or fame. Yeah. Um, I think he quite likes being kind of what I would call like the silent creator. Um, and and you know what? If if he produces output like that, then good on him. Um, I'd rather I you know he he is a he is for me not only one of the well not only the best but probably one of the most important writers in british comedy um his his stuff is is literally gold uh you know like i said i studied to be a script writer but when you sit down and watch something he's done you kind of just give up because yeah, um, you, you can I've, never get as good i've had <laughs> moments in my life where i wanted to, to write scripts i've got as far yeah. as writing fools and horses scripts a couple oh, okay my own ideas yeah, yeah but i stop and go all i'm doing is copying an idea, and I'm trying to think of a new plot for characters that have already been created, for the environment they're already in, that, that that's all already been written. I just treated my brief hobby that. My brief experience of writing was a hobby, and I've tried to think of new ideas. God knows, I, I just don't. I think it is through life experiences, and it's 
that cliche saying, right, what you know, and all the rest of it. Have you got anything in the works, or have you? No, are you not concentrating on that moment? I, I kind of, uh, I, you know, I very rapidly realised that there was, you know, no real job prospects in that kind of industry, mm. um, and and do I? Writing is something I enjoy, but it's it's time consuming, and in my job now, I'm very lucky that um, we get such fabulous items. So I write for a couple of magazines, um, articles and stuff for various different papers uh, and stuff like that. So I still use my my love of writing. It's just in a slightly different way now. Right. Um, but but you know, one one foot in the grave uh, and David Renwick have, have genuinely been quite an inspiration in in my life. Uh, not not just stuff I happen to write down, but st- the way I talk sometimes is rich. Yeah straight from one foot in the grave um and the little sayings that come out of it it's you know it, it really has uh, had quite a big impact on me uh, and it's something i will love uh, forever that has got to be one of the most fascinating insights to david ramwick i'll probably ever hear because he is a very private individual yeah, he is i assume him to be victor meldrew because well obviously <laughs> not only write the character but he supposedly based a lot of his personality traits on yeah. Victor. So if, if there was a real life Victor Meldrew, I mean, we're all on Victor's side for pretty much everything, oh, yes. aren't we? Yes. But he, he might not be the most approachable individual. I don't know. However, well, it depends on the episode you watch, I suppose. But I just, I just don't... I mean, Renwick is a hard man to track down. And you were lucky enough to, you know, amongst many thousands at a uh, memorial, track him yeah. down, which is great. It'd be great to have some of the cast on. And I'm working on it, one or two, but... It's just nice to talk to fellow fans about it. And there's no podcast out there dedicated to one foot at the moment. There might be someone else who has a go. But you and I, we, we, we love our podcasts. And One Foot <laughs> in the Grave is one I've been waiting for somebody to do. But they just weren't. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's me. It's, it's, that, I, sec- I, I, it's I, that secret club. You yeah. know, it's all, it's all part of a secret mm. club. And there obviously are a lot of people out there who love it. Um, but maybe the, the core fan base isn't as big as it is for some of the other shows. I don't think it is, no. I think, um, I do speculate that the fact those who are watching it in the 90s may have been in their 40s, 50s and 60s. Yeah. And those same individuals, if they're with us still, they will have internet. Will they listen to podcasts? I don't know. I just feel like... I, I can actually look at the listeners I get. The core of the listenership is 35 to 45, which oh, so makes sense to, in many ways. You need to get them on cassette. You need to be going into the vinyl market. This is this You're missing a trick now. I think the BBC would have, have something to say. True. But, um, all right, well, I reckon that's uh, quite an opener from you, Mr. Stowe. <laughs> what happens with this episode? Victor's life is full of activities and misdemeanors once again by carrying out a pastime hobby involving magic and undertaking a new job as a lollipop man. Mrs. Warboy's fears for the future of her marriage and peace talks are underway between the Meldrews and the Trenches. Episode opens up with a close-up of a portable radio. Uh, with the radio presenter being, well, it's David Renwick, of course. He, he likes the odd cameo role, doesn't he? In his, uh, yeah, he does. He's, I, that's, you know, he's squirreled, squirreled himself away in a couple of episodes. I'm getting better at spotting them now. Mm. Uh, I think if ever there was like an extra voice needed on a radio or something, I think he was always the one. He's uh, just ready in- to go, yeah. I just say, you can just tell his voice a mile off, can't you? It's a very distinctive yeah. tone and pitch, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I always wonder in those instances... 
um you know do, do people ask you to do that or do you go i'm going to do that um so do i is it one of those things where you know he's kind of like using his his power to go oh no no I, i'll do that one or does somebody go we need a voice david do you want to do it well i, I think he probably built up so much respect especially from susie belbin that she probably would yeah. have the final say at ultimately being director producer whatever but i feel like he would say i'd like to I'm writing myself in to play the radio presenter. So that's what will happen. And they just commission it. As time goes by, a writer will have a certain amount of influence over casting. Quite convincing, really. He does, it does sound quite professional. It's, he's welcoming a call onto the line on line two. So on line two, we have Patrick. Good evening to you, Patrick. And what's your question for Mimsy Berkovitz? Well, it's a bit of a tricky one, but uh, put simply, my wife and I live next door to a madman. If I tell you a few weeks ago, he put a specially trained crab up my shorts while I was asleep in the garden, and that I had to be rushed to hospital with it hanging between my legs. If you're a passenger on a tube train, uh, you'll get some idea of the problem. What's tricky is that uh, they've invited us round to their house tomorrow for a meal to try and patch things up. I just wonder if we should risk it. It does sound a delicate one, Patrick, welcoming on this to ask uh, Mimsy Berkovich. She's an unseen character. She's like the local agony aunt. Characters tend to turn to for advice. I think she might be an agony aunt in the local rag. One of my, my little kind of favourite things about, about Renwick are his names. Um, and, yeah. I, and I know this has been brought up before, but his names of companies or characters are just so beautiful. Got a good um, knack, isn't he, for coming up with some... Yeah, the only other person that I say that kind of does names as good as him is Charles Dickens. Um, uh-huh. but to, me, Ren- to me, Renwick beats them. You yeah. hear a character's name uh, and you can you instantly know, <laughs> like you can picture what that character is going to be like. Um, and I love his names um, and they're so good. And I do not know how you, how you even invent some names like that. Mimsy Berkowitz. These names that are made the funniest when you actually don't meet them or don't see them. It's like in yes. Falls and Horses, you never see Monkey Harris or Sunglasses Ron. Yes. You have a good picture of what they look like and what they're like, but those names are quite kooky, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, but, as we um, go through this episode and a lot of other uh, One Point of Grave episodes as well, uh, something that Renwick does that some other sitcoms do or some other writers do, but not as much as him, uh, is, he, and he's very good at it. And, and there's a few instances in this one, which we'll, we'll get on as we get through them, I'm sure, um, where the joke is funnier when you don't see it. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. But if you don't see the end result of the joke and just imagine yeah. it, that's definitely funnier. And and they kind of and you know in uh, there's a few episodes as well and it, and in this one as well there's a a couple of references to it. There are things that there are jokes that are just never explained, mm. um, and I love that. And most other programs would go to some great length to explain, uh, you know, explain the joke. And and there's a you know there's one big instance in this episode, but I'll wait for it to uh, to yeah come no up that's fine. That we'll, we'll kind of, uh, yeah I love that observation. <laughs> your your observation game is strong already. I'm loving it. You'll pick out things I probably didn't see. Uh, but of course, Patrick, not really learning his lesson from the last episode. That's okay. So so like, so like, this one, so I actually meant to say at the beginning, uh, this episode here, this is an odd episode. I've got a weird feeling that this was actually originally filmed uh, in a different sequence. You think? Yeah. So, so Patrick in this episode talks a lot about the pit in the pendulum. But we've seen him already in warm champagne where it wasn't mentioned because he talks in this episode he talks a lot about the crab up the shorts in a few weeks ago doesn't yes. he say in that because their timeline is what i was going to say was we'll come so he's calling in 
to you know talk about the madman from next from next door he's already been found out for creating a diary and slagging off victor which he of course accidentally had a, had a printout of here we are only what a week or two later in one foot in the grave timeline and he's now calling on a, a local radio show um and this radio is in the Meldridge kitchen so he hasn't really learned his lesson but you were just saying there about he quotes the crab up the leg story from a few weeks ago from pit in the pendulum like you were saying and pit in the pendulum was start of series four so from episode one to this moment it's only two or three weeks apparently yeah i mean you know it's that alone reference a sitcom referencing another episode is quite a rare thing um i'm not aware but i may be wrong because uh, i'm not an, like an in-depth expert i'm not aware of any other episodes referencing other episodes that's quite an unusual it's, thing it is i've to. yeah I've, I've spoken a fair amount about that i do like that each, yeah, in the British sitcom world, they don't really reference certain moments from past, other than if characters have got married or yeah. children, obviously. But you're right, they they don't really talk about previous instances, do they? And I, no. and I, I do like that. I do like that they meant they reference things from our past episodes. Patrick will do more of this throughout the series. I think he goes to some sort of anger management therapy class where he, they're yeah. all forced to laugh. I think that's in series six. But he, he's got a bit of a, of a dilemma. He's, um, he asks Mimsy, what should he do about the situation in Hanway? He's been invited to uh, the Meldries for a meal to patch things up between the pair. He doesn't really want to do it because, well, he thinks it's a bit of a risk. He's a bit dramatic, of course. During that conversation, Mrs. Warboys walks in. She's looking a little bit peaky, isn't she? She's not looking at her best. Poor, poor Mrs. Warboys. Mrs. Warboys is probably my favourite character in One Foot in the Grave. Poor, poor Mrs. Warboys. Everything she does, bless her, goes wrong. Um, and yet normally she's completely innocent in everything. Um, and, you know, this episode in particular, she's not... Doesn't go down well, does it, her... Um... She... No, she's not. She's not. Uh, she's not a comedy character. This entire episode, she's playing that dramatic, yeah. um, and it's a deadly serious thing. You know, her her husband is potentially having an affair, um, and yet we we probably laugh more at Mrs. Warboys than any other character in this oh, episode. No. Um, Dory Manor just, was just um, just wonderful in throughout. She's just absolutely faultless. It might be the fact she's a well, she was and still is a professional stage actress so she just knows how to nail these her character is just perfect and you can't imagine any other actress completely she's having a go now but yeah so she she is um she brings margaret so margaret follows gene warboys into the kitchen wants to know you know what's the matter and they they go into the living room for a, a sit down victor's not sat in his usual chair i notice he's in the armchair opposite um, where he'd usually be sat, and he's got a pair of headphones on. I've actually got a snapshot of this, of Victor with his headphones on, on the One Foot Podcast Twitter pro header photo, because I like to think he's listening to One Foot <laughs> in the podcast. This um, this scene uh, is quite possibly one of my favourite scenes in oh, One Foot in the Grave. It's um, just... <laughs> I've never laughed so much at an act laughing. Yeah, yeah. And it's very unusual. So... This little sequence here, if you can call it a sequence, poor, old, poor Mrs. Warboy, she is talking through her current traumatic emotional um, experiences or, or her anxieties. And as, uh, ultimately, she believes her husband, Chris, who we have not met and we will spoiler here, 
we will never meet. She believes he's having an affair. And this brings out a huge laugh, a very infectious, infectious laugh from Victor because he's just, he is essentially listening, or like I said, he is listening to Monty Python if it's what I think it is. I'm sure it is Monty Python. Same. So like, so I spent, I spent a while trying to uh, work out what that was, and I think it is Monty it's, Python. It's that, yeah. So with, with each breakdown of Mrs. Warboy's his anxiety, Victor laughs um, at inappropriate moments. Well, I think I'm going to be sick. <laughs> <laughs> so the first laugh is just saying she thinks she's going to be sick through her fear. Brings out a laugh from Victor. I think Chris is having an affair. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> of course, she thinks Chris is having an affair. Another roar of laughter from Victor with his huge headphones on. And Mrs. Warboy suspects this. It's, it's the woman two doors down from them. She's a widow lady. She lost her husband who died due to the ear syringing accident. Uh, ear syringing. I don't know if that ear syringing incident was mentioned in a previous episode. It might have been, but it, the, the, it doesn't. The, it, it, you don't know what happened. Like you were saying, it's a joke. But we, we I just have to imagine what an ear syringing incident. Yeah, is. I mean, what, how David, does that kill you off? Know, David Renwick and his names uh, and his medical injuries are also something. Uh, there's an episode somewhere. I've got a feeling it might be, it might be in this series. Forgive me, I I, I don't know it particularly. Um, where they, they they undo somebody's cast and the hand was there, but no arm. No arm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then that's brought up again in Pit and the Pendulum. Margaret recounts that story to whoever I think to her mother and says they they found the arm or the prosthetic limb and they play snooker with it. <laughs> it's just utterly mad, utterly mad. Jean has some pretty far-fetched evidence to suggest that Chris is having an affair. She pulls out of her handbag uh, some laundry. is a is a pillowcase, a pillowcase that belongs to this lady. It blew off in the wind apparently and landed in their garden, and it's uh, coloured prints, stripes, a section that's been bleached off, and she suspects it's to do with the acne gel that Chris uses on the back of his neck every night and that she has the same problem when he, when they go to bed. He puts the acne gel on and it obviously wipes away the print of the bedding, I assume. And so she is putting yeah. two and two together, making five, if you ask me. It's, it's Yeah, it's pretty flimsy evidence. It's flimsy evidence, um, but she's that paranoid. She's, she's willing yeah. to suggest that's the thing. And Victor, of course, um, he laughs again when... Um, Jean confirmed that she thinks Chris's head has been on the pillow. His head's been on this pillow, Margaret. I know it has. <laughs> <laughs> and she announces that she, to be sure of her worries, she's going to hire a private detective. And all I could think of when she said that was Hetty Wainthrop, played <laughs> by Patricia Rutledge. Because that would that would be the wonderful spin-off that we'd be a wonderful sort see. of crossover, like yeah, because it, it was Hetty Wainthrop was. Early mid nineties, so yeah, it would have crossed time, over. Yeah. Could have been, could have been. I like to think it was Hetty Wainthrop. So um, she goes, if, if she finds out he's been cheating, she might kill herself. And then another roar of laughter from Victor <laughs> because whatever he's listening to, which I suspect is Monty Python. Yeah, it, and of course, you know, like uh, and and the, the whole the whole Monty Python thing. I'm, you know, is do I really believe that Victor Meldrew's taste in humour is Monty Python? Do he, I don't. Well, I think it's the link. It's the nod to Eric Idle. 
Yes, of course. Starters, and I, I suspect that Renwick is a fan of Python. He, you know, he he will put in references to pop culture of those he likes and dislikes, and depending on Victor Meldry's view, is probably what Renwick thinks. That's just probably obvious yeah. to say. I'd also like to say that, that in this scene, we've got Victor sat there with his headphones on with whiskey and a box of Maltesers. Uh, that's exactly how I listen to this podcast. Um, so we're one and the same. <laughs> yeah, he likes his whiskey and smarties, isn't it? As you, like, yeah. He, um, when he roars with laughter, he gets the disapproving look from Margaret. If I did find out, he'd be, I don't know what I'd do. I think I'd, I just might kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> He's just blissfully unaware, um, and he quotes spam, spam, which is a a very famous one. Quite a lot of Python sketches are iconic, but that is Terry Jones and Graham Chapman. Okay. I think. I'm not not into my Python, so I don't know the specifics of it. Mm. Um, I I did look it up to see if it was an Eric Idle sketch, and I know he's in it, but he didn't actually write it. Um, but yeah, I think you're I th- right. It's just that connection to when, to when I watched, I watched, I went to see Python live um, in wow. 2014, and Idol played was in the spam sketch uh, with okay. Terry But anyway, yeah. So that ends that scene, really. So what we learned so far is Mrs. Warboys is central to the plot, really. At this at this point, she's not often. Um, she's just there or thereabouts, isn't she? But she, yeah, it's, it's all to do with her. Also, it's it's the first time we've really seen Victor properly roaring with laughter about anything it's the True. first time i can't recall he's been moments where he smiled and he's been in a good mood for about half a scene but he's never laughed this much before that's true. Actually, you're right. I hadn't even ever thought of that. But you're right. It's kind of the first time we really see him uh, kind of relaxing and doing something that he wants to do. Yeah, it's nice. Um, you're it's, right. Um, yeah, that's nice. It's uh, it is nice. And with him laughing at unintentionally at Mrs. Warboys. First of all, just it's poor Mrs. Warboys. She's always on the uh, you know receiving end of, of 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 a laugh. He doesn't really regard her that highly. He he doesn't dislike her. He's they've got a bizarre relationship they yeah. don't address each other by christian name they're quite wary of one of each other's company but but when the chips are down i think they support each other but it's just funny that he's laughing at her yeah it's a great it's that great thing that, that is so often a theme in one foot in the grave and what normally sets it aside is we've got we're we're laughing <laughs> during like what is it, essentially the most tragic situation i think i think at one point mrs warboy says she could die or she wants to kill herself or something <laughs> Uh, and, and Victor laughs, and then we, as the audience, it's like a, we we almost nervously laugh. We're doubling <laughs> down on the laughter, aren't we? Exactly, uh, yeah. and it's it's <sighs> just it's so Renwick, um, and it's such a one foot in the grave thing to me. That entire scene is kind of what what kind of makes one foot in the grave one just, foot in the grave. Why is Victor not sat in his normal chair? Is it uh, is it production related matters, or is it just? Uh, isn't there. that uh, so? As a, a fellow sort of nerd, uh, isn't his hi-fi on the cupboard oh, next to the door by the answer. window? Yeah, that so makes I think sense. his headphones. I think, but it, they know, didn't have Bluetooth then, did they? They didn't. Sadly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Victor wouldn't have liked that anyway. I'm sure. No. Okay, so I think this is later in the evening, night time. Margaret is trying to calm Jean down on the telephone, and uh, she suggests she calls the conference hotel to have a mind at rest. So Chris is obviously having some sort of, he's a businessman. I, we don't know what he does, but he, I think he earns a lot of money, hence the huge house. It could be Mrs. Warboy's money as well, but he's, he's obviously got some sort of top job and he's at some hotel. If you go to a hotel for a conference, you probably 
you probably got a relatively important job. Well, yeah, not important to everyone else, but he probably earns a few quid. Poor Mrs. Warboys is probably thinking he's got some uh, floozy staying in his room. So apparently ringing the hotel will confirm if he's got someone with, with them or not. And as she walks, uh, she walks in on um, Victor in, I assume, the spare bedroom, which we last saw in Broken Reflection, where Alfred, his brother, stayed. So it's quite nice to see the spare room. And yep. he's trying out his, it looks like he's got a load of equipment down from the loft. It's is from his uh, magician days. Now, in a, I can't remember who suggested one of the guests that came on. Um, I think it might have been it might have been Lucy, who I had on for a recent episode. She suggested that the house. I'm sorry if it wasn't Lucy; it was someone else, and that that person is going to contact me and say, "Oh, wait. but the <laughs> house, of course, burnt down, didn't it?" Yep. Yes. And here they are in their newish house. Wouldn't his gear? and anything they had perished so the magician equipment i'm because i'm assuming that all this so victor's trying out the like magic tricks he's got in his room so he's he's, he's digging out his old creative hand here he'd like he'd have to purchase that or borrow that off friends i suppose but i'm just wondering it's just you just assume he's got that down from the loft I mean, that's, yeah, that's an interesting observation that, that I hadn't even thought about. It. And, you know, I, I frequently forget that this is their second house in this the series. It. Yeah. Um, but, and, and you can probably answer this better than I can. I'm not aware of uh, Victor's conjuring past being, a, being mentioned in any other episode other than the first ever one. Is that I think, the case? Um, well, in Who Will Buy, he did the ventriloquist act. Yeah. It's the nearest we, it's not magic, but it's the nearest thing. Is it brought up again in future? He he's got the creative side. He did a bit of script writing and dram, uh, dramatic fever. Yeah. In a future episode, Hole in the Sky, he's, he finds an old wooden puppet he's created, yeah. which uh, he said he hadn't had that for years. Yeah. Which I okay, think, okay. Uh, and I think the tricks on the roof. He was trying to make a, a modified cuddly toy, yeah. which caused nightmares to many. <laughs> he's definitely got a creative side, as you've said. He and, has and... got creative side. So. Well, Margaret, as ever, is putting him down, really, with this. She, um, she does come out with a very funny line. Cross between the magic circle and Dad's army. He's got a hobby once a week. He and his fellow uh, magic circle friends, who are described as something cross between the magic circle and Dad's army, which I thought was brilliant. Brilliant I line. I love that Mark, line. Get together and you know, perform these tricks to one another. And Victor's got a, like, not say machete, but got a sword, and he's, he's putting in a balloon inside that. The, I don't know what the trick is called, but it's the box where... The sides come off the, the four, the four edges, yeah. metal edges, like a hatch, isn't it? Yeah. And he, yeah, put, yeah. he puts in the balloon head just to test it out, and he of course pops the balloon. I just, I love my favorite bit about that is I love that, obviously in in the realm of the show, Victor has drawn this amazing smiley face on the balloon, and it just makes me smile because you kind of think, you know, Victor's renowned for being so grumpy, uh, and yet, yeah, he can draw a perfectly good smile. Uh, on a balloon. You read and there's, a, there's like, something comical about that. That's right. It's big smile. You could like one could in, look into his psyche and think, well, he's actually probably not as miserable as we think, is he? Putting a smiley face on a balloon, but it's the world uh, that's that's making him grumpy. He's perfectly fine. It's the yes. world around him. That's right. Yeah, he's probably quite comfortable within within himself, apart from when he's bored. But Margaret puts um, she does put Victor down in a comical way, utterly pathetic. She asks Victor. I think she's hung up the phone by now and she asks if friends or guys that are coming over to do the you know some magic she asks if the one with the gammy elbow isn't going to start sawing myself in half again this time because he 
apparently a lot of blood seeped out on their carpet. I think he said it's a Mr. Hemstridge who had a bit of a heart scare last week. So she should be pleased that he's keeping busy. And he's at his best when he's busy. So yeah. I don't know what the, the huge problem is apart from spilt blood on the floor. In the midst of their conversation, uh, we hear like a siren, don't we? <laughs> yes, and that's right. Victor lets out an... I don't believe it! Um, that's one of the episode. Whatever this siren, whatever it means, it's it's been happening to them recently because they both rushed downstairs and it's a, uh, a firefighter gentleman. Exploded chip man. What? Excuse me, sir. Come and get through, please. No. Played by a chap called Vince Lee. His first, that was his first ever role. Um, uh, so, uh, so no, so that's actually wrong. So IMDb is, is wrong. Yeah, that's not Vince Lee. That's Chris Walker, um, who Who's actually... Chris Lee? Uh, so Chris Walker... Uh, yeah, weirdly, it's wrong on IMDb. So Chris they've Walker... They've been wrong before, to be fair. They've... they've, they've um... Chris like Walker kid, plays <laughs> plays uh, PC Hollins in Doctors. Played that for about twenty years or so. Um, but yeah, I did. I noticed that when I looked this up. Uh, yeah, IMDb have they've they've done you up. I, in, I ignored the fact that this Vince Lee actor looks nothing like, even though it's twenty five <laughs> odd years later, it looks nothing like this. I just thought he might have aged well. So Chris <laughs> it Walker. Happen. Okay, well there you go. Because if I didn't have you one, I'd have just carried on with that and rolled with that. <laughs> so um what else has he been in? Uh so he's in uh so he's in Doctors. I don't know much else. I think he again he's one of those kind of uh, like character actors that's been uh in kind of little parts in big things. Right. Um but you know, this this entire this entire joke uh is as I think I was saying earlier, this is never explained. Um, you know, yeah, we, so we know we know that it's yeah. pranksters and things Pranks, like that. And, yeah, who's and been I think... doing this? We could, yeah, we could probably we'll have we'll have fun speculating as we go. But at the moment, I think it's Patrick. <laughs> That's my bet. <laughs> That's a good. I've never ever once thought of that actually. Um, that yeah, you could be onto something there. But uh, and is, again, is Patrick the sort to want to waste emergency resources? I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't. Is know. it the kid? Is it the the new family in Riverbank who? Play Number cricket 10. in his garden in um <laughs> in the episode warm champagne. It could be anyone. It could be any it of his, be in his uh, any of his enemies, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Margaret even says the line. Drawn up a short list of five thousand names. You <laughs> know what? When when there's a a line of dialogue like like that where you can hear but not see them, it, yes. it it's ten times funnier. Completely, it is and it, ten and this... times funnier. This joke in itself, uh, as the audience, we're halfway into this joke. It's yeah. not, you know, I think a lot of a lot of writers would have started off with this joke. Of, you know, whoa, what's going on? Who mm. are the fire brigade? Whereas we're, Victor's already halfway through this. So as yeah. the audience, we're brought halfway in. And that, to me, makes it, makes it a little bit funnier as well. It's three uh, times so far it's happened to them. Um, <laughs> and the fire, firefighters are quite apologetic. And, and they leave the house and... Victor lets out the most hilarious under his breath. <laughs> which brings out a roar of laughter from the audience. Like that is it's just a Richard, word. It's just it's a common Richard Wilson's delivery. He was Richard Hugo. Wilson was was born to say that word. Yeah. Um Bastards. that's the most perfect word for his his accent. Yeah. Um, it's, it's wonderful. I love it. Which rounds off the scene, possibly the next day. Victor's in in a in his local cafe. 
Um, and it looks like he's, and in fact, he has a job as a, as a lollipop man. And I don't know if that was... We've, as far we've as not, I'm aware, this was never explained. You've never explained. Uh, he's just, he, he's, he gets odd jobs. I think the last episode, uh, he went for an, a job at the local newspaper agency as a packer, I think it was. In I think it was warm champagne. He was waiting to hear back about a job. But this is something totally different. So, yeah, it's, we're not really... Unless there's a deleted scene um, out there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that, that is, um, you know, this takes the sitcom in different directions. It takes it out of the house setting. I know, I think on several, on some of the DVD commentaries, uh, Renwick was always saying how he didn't want it to just be Terry and June. Um, mm. He was always trying to make it outside of that kind of, traditional family husband and wife sitcom i think by giving uh by giving victor different jobs now and then means that you can go to different places meet different yep. people and i think that's kind of part of what keeps it alive and fresh um, and i just love that he's a lollipop man the most grumpy man you could ever meet uh in charge of crossing children safely across the road <laughs> i i feel like it's a waste that um he's having cornflakes or whatever he's having Fry yeah. up. you're in a cafe I mean, exactly. If, if you're a frequent Isn't visitor, you're not going to have a But I think, oh, cornflakes and a cup of tea. But um, out of nowhere, <laughs> Mr. Sweeney comes up with one of his classic openings. Morning, Mr. Meldrew. <laughs> Keeping your bowels open. Sorry? Victor didn't spot Mr. Sweeney, a matter of yards from him, because he's eating a corn-based meal. Yeah. So it's, it's, that, it's up there with, um, is it me or is it moist? You know, these out of the nowhere lines from Mr. Sweeney childlike innocence with his one-liners and he doesn't mean anything yeah. crude by them he's just he's just, just the way too he is. honest and polite isn't he so um this is where i think mr sweeney on the audience's behalf is asking him about oh we got a new job and you settle in and okay mr victor seems quite positive and picking up his training quite well he does another mystic an old mr gittings type cryptic question this time yeah. about um psycho sam and Psycho Sam was apparently someone who had killed off the previous lollipop man, old Bertie, apparently, implying some sort of road rage murder, but he doesn't go into it. Like, it's so frustrating. Mr. Sweeney kind of <laughs> teases Victor. Play f- he's, he's not really playing with him on purpose because he's not that personality. He's, he's not there to wind him up. He's just oblivious to Victor's anxieties about yeah, the unknown. I mean- he's you know he's always he's always giving him these little cryptic messages half half conversations yeah. um and even in this one here he's he's quite quick to leave the scene yeah. um and it's you know <laughs> he's he's he he'll say these comments to victor um and very often it just leaves more questions to be asked than it actually answers and it, it, it works it fits in perfectly with one from the grave victor's started off relaxed and he's very quickly on edge again and with that as mr sweeney leaves we hear another siren this time the fire brigade interrupt victor for the well what's this fourth time you've got a lollipop man in here stuck inside a smoke-filled urina (laughs) (laughs) oh shit and they notice straight away they see victor victor can barely speak flubbergasted it's another prank that's all there is to that scene really i think it's just to show us the audience that this is an ongoing prank and we'll see a little bit more of this 
Yeah, I mean this, you know, this this uh, is an unusual scene because obviously we don't we this is a one time use set that they've built here. We don't yeah. ever see this set ever again, and it's quite a complicated set. There's true, uh, there's background actors, there's lots of stuff going on in there, and it's not used for anything other than a sitting down conversation, as far as I can tell. My other. Yeah, and a very short scene as well. But, you know, maybe it was for the fire brigade joke. Maybe they needed another location to show that they're following Victor around, that the pranksters can see where he is. Um, but yeah, it's a slightly odd one. Yeah, and we, um, it's almost certainly not on location. That's this, this well-crafted well studio shot. Yeah, but nevertheless, a lot of, a lot of um, pop yeah. work and a few extras to pay there. But it works because you exactly. have to have that build-up of this prank getting escalating further and further it does and, it does work and I, I guess it is necessary but yeah very just, short scene yeah completely there's just one other thing and i only noticed this uh yesterday when i was reviewing this kind of pausing it and making notes um what does mr sweeney eat for breakfast have you seen oh uh, all i could see was like a cup of tea and he had a bowl of soup do you have a bowl or something on his table are a bowl of i think 10 grapefruit halves oh implying that he's eaten five grapefruits for breakfast um and it's just one of those weird little things that i don't think anybody has ever noticed um but kind of you know they put there somewhere in the bbc production office or in rehearsals there was probably a conversation what does mr swaney eat for breakfast and yeah. somebody decided it was five grapefruits well that was almost um, <laughs> certainly renwick i think everything to the last detail was renwick with a bit of influence from susie belbin yes i think almost certainly you just thought he's a kooky weird but lovely gentleman, lovely. not weird in the sense he's, he's, an, he's an, 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 a nasty person or creepy, but it's something he would do. It yeah. suddenly makes the cornflakes look more desirable because oh, yes. for me, grapefruit, no thanks. Very good for you, but no. <laughs> but yeah, good, good little spot. I didn't really, I just assumed he'd had a cup of tea. I didn't think it mattered, but every little detail matters. Genuinely a purpose to it or character building purpose anyway yeah there's something to it i'm sure next scene it's a daytime external shot of the meldry's house around the back margaret's just leaving to help out at the shops as apparently meg who's mentioned for the first time for quite some time who we saw in monday morning will be fine yep. colleague work at the floor street she's calling six so margaret's going to do a bit of overtime and we see a window cleaner in the background played by i hope i've got this right john cassidy who was also a the nurse in Retired to Bedlam, who played the slightly disturbed porter nurse. I don't know if that's... Yeah, I think, I think it's, I, I looked up, I think his name was Mr. Brocklebank uh, back in that's that episode. That's it, Brocklebank, yeah. Um, and, and I never noticed that he was the same actor. I, no. There are a couple of actors that reprise different roles in the series, but not many. He's Nick Maloney's one. Yep. Yeah, and I have to credit a former guest on the show who, I think it might have been Ben, who told me that, yeah, this um, actor, John Cassidy, was, he was in our retired bedroom as well is, is this episode yeah um, but he's window cleaning steps i've got your dash i put some coffee out if you want to help yourself your money's on the kitchen table champion thanks very much margaret is just leaving the um through the back entrance i wonder why they go through the back entrance why well, i don't i don't know victor returns from his his uh shift and she says she's gonna do this shift and have a spot of lunch with jean still continuing to be there for mrs Warboy through hour, hours of need She's, She's a very no... good friend. Margaret Margaret is a very good friend. Mm. Um, and I think Jean probably is a very good friend yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that whole, that whole leaving through the back thing, uh, it's, that is of its generation. My nan 
uh, who's in her nineties, bless her, would would she spent her life doing that? You never went in somebody's front door. Uh, no. You'd always go around the back, and and that kind of trait of calling everybody by their surname, like Mister Smith. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Uh, that's she would do that as well. She she the people she's lived next door to for seventy five years yeah. are still Mister and Mrs. So and So. They're not, you know, they're not using their Christian names. I think it's I think it's perfect observation of that kind of generation of of elderly people yeah. that, that have those little traits. Yeah, it's it's a very cute thing, really. That you know these little generational traits you're saying, like it doesn't, it might still be a thing for some, but I just I read into everything. The difference between I find podcasting a sitcom to just watching it as a any like any other fan is you don't really pick up as much. But when you're doing a podcast, I I try my best to pick up everything because I know that my guests do a superb job of you know reading between the lines but for the listeners back home i think i was charming mr stowe there because he's like all the other guests seem to pick up lots of things (laughs) stop Stop it stop it (laughs) that evening the trenches patrick and pippa are coming around for a like peace talks dinner i think probably from the awkwardness of patrick and his diary and probably other things i don't see why it's up to the meldrews to cook them dinner Although someone's got to do it. I think it should be Patrick and Pippa cooking dinner personally. But <laughs> nevertheless, Victor says he'll do one of his specials because Margaret's got no time to cook. and She seems quite relieved that he's willing to prepare the dinner. Again, another relatively short scene. The key thing here is Margaret has told the window cleaner that she's left the money and some coffee on the on the table. Yeah. So help yeah, yourself. This, that's, this that's set, a, sets up that joke nicely. It's the universal rule that if you've got a workman, workwoman, offer them a cup of tea or a coffee. It's just standard protocol. I feel comfortable <laughs> doing it. I could not offer them something because I just feel, I'm, although I'm paying you, feel like it breaks the ice somewhat. It does. It's a very British thing. Everything can be haggled over a cup of tea. Exactly. Um, very British. Victor sort of acknowledges the window cleaner and enters inside. We are brought to Patrick and Pippa's kitchen. Patrick, as ever, sarcastically, well, sarcastic in tone, pretending to read a horoscope ah here we are what did i tell you my horoscope for the day do not under any circumstances go round for a meal tonight at victor meldrews unless accompanied by a trained exorcist (laughs) he just sees victor in every single bad light now and pippa is not too pleased she's doing a bit of cleaning she hasn't got time for patrick's tone i think she just wants a peaceful life you want your neighbors to get on with you and at the moment there's a bit of friction i don't think it's from margaret at all but she just wants her husband and victor to to get on and margaret probably wants the same i imagine i think very often you know it's the the two women are behaving perfectly fine um and they're looking after their uh, kind of childish husbands um you know margaret and pippa probably get on superbly well um (laughs) but only it's their men that are misbehaving yeah Um, it's quite a nice little touch i think yeah, I mean, they're worse neighbours. If you, From Patrick's point of view, there are worse neighbours to have than Victor. You could have, like, stuff, again, I mentioned this before, you could have someone, a youngster playing music all day and all night. You could have them having parties, just genuinely being anti-sociable at yeah. worst. I mean, apart from the, the fact that they're, they're trying to sell the house and a certain huge cow, um, <laughs> you know, trampled all over their conservatory. Not a huge amount of stress brought on to Patrick. I think he's just yeah. built up. And- Stress and a lot of the things aren't, you know, if if that was, if I was Patrick, you know, I kind of take a view that a lot of the things are accidental 
Um, mm. You know, a crab up the shorts. You can't really blame Victor for that. That's not that wasn't him directly. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I think sometimes Patrick is is you know going a little bit too too far sometimes in his uh, hatred for uh, Victor. Everyone um, says this, and and it's part of Renwick's purposely done this to frustrate us that we know why Victor's in certain situations. Patrick yeah. rarely does, and he just doesn't get that point of view. And yeah, and sometimes I can put myself in Patrick's shoes and think that is weird but without an explanation you're gonna think that aren't you but that's <laughs> exactly, a very short exactly. it's, it's a very short scene it just ends with pippa misdirecting him by asking can you see an old dirty floor cloth by the door um yep well would you mind shoving it in your bloody mouth <laughs> <laughs> margaret very margaret-esque in many ways the way she's speaking to patrick she's absolutely fed up that scene ends pretty abruptly really from that point i don't really see the point in that scene other than just to show patrick's dreading yeah. the meal but we know he would be yeah so. yeah you're, you're kind of right um yeah you know it's it's one of those scenes it's it has its place where i think we see patrick and pippa uh because they probably needed introducing before they got to victor and margaret's yeah um i suspect that's the reason you're, you're kind of right there's no real reason for it but it, we'd probably miss it if it wasn't there, I'd imagine. That's right, yeah. Um, I, I'd rather them in, them in than not be in, but immediately follows Victor prepping the uh, dinner for tonight. He's uh, got a concoction of ingredients on the table. He's quite confident. He, said, he does think it's going to be one of his specials. Whatever he's cooking, I think I don't know, it's like a bolognese. Is it chili? Chili. That's chili. It. It's chili. Says later. Yeah. chili powder. This is lining up the joke perfectly. We, we all but know what's going to happen. Since there's coffee on the table, there's also chili powder, cumin, a couple of mugs. Um, Victor, as ever, is distracted by something. The doorbell conveniently rings and the window cleaner comes in to take a coffee break. There's a mug with the chili powder and cumin in. And naturally, the window cleaner thinks that's for him because Margaret said there's coffee out. It's the an table. easy mistake to make. It's an easy mistake to make. So at this point, he adds a bit more coffee, pours hot water in, and that's it. I mean, he is... It reminds me of, in a roundabout way, Fools and Horses, Time on Our Hands, Uncle Albert mixing up the coffee granules with the Coffee and gravy, gravy yep. This one has, on the label, Maxwell House coffee. And on this label, it says, Oxo gravy granules. <laughs> That's a bit of a giveaway, really, isn't it? <laughs> what, the window clean does that? Oh, God, not just window cleans, but it seems to be the, the type who whistle in a way that no one can hear me whistle, whistle. Yes. You know, oh, just like it's irritating. There's no particular tune to it. It's just I'm going to whistle just to dampen <laughs> out the silence. Um, that's that was something that irritated me a little bit. It does. If I happen to be in a change room at a leisure centre, some bloke whistling away is <laughs> right through me. Um, just for I a mean, pet hate. It's a Meldrum moan. I'm, I'm starting the Meldrum moan off early this episode. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it's one of those things. That, and, and John Cassidy, there, uh, the actor who's playing window cleaner, um, he builds that so perfectly. The moment he walks in that door, we as the audience know what that joke is. Yeah. Um, but he does all this kind of like, um, like building up of it, checking the temperature of the kettle and stuff <laughs> like that. And it just, it just builds. We all know it? what's coming. Um, yeah. And it's just building 
it up. You know, the, the one thing that kind of struck my mind if, if I was being a bit picky um, and, you know, why not, um, is how long has this actually taken? Because we saw Margaret in the garden saying to the window cleaner, you know, the kettle's just boiled, uh, help yourself. Uh, Victor, in that meantime, has had time to change, put on a pinny, get some stuff in a pan. Um, and, you know, I kind of get the impression this is a lot longer than five minutes or something like that. Yeah, I mean, um, 20 minutes later. Maybe the kettle still. I think Victor's probably reboiled the kettle for himself. I don't know. He's a good Just, window cleaner. He's he's put in his work before the cup of tea, which is great. Yeah, so exactly that. Well, alongside this, we are in the office or Patrick and Pippa's spare room office, and Pippa's still a bit peed off about you know the conflict between Victor and Patrick. They're just a normal couple like you and me, trying to lead normal everyday lives. What do we hear? We hear the the end result of window cleaner consuming the chili coffee and very overly dramatic screaming. So Patrick and Pippa look out the window. Pippa's just dropped herself in it because she's just, just trying to defend her, her neighbours and here's this randomer running out into the uh, neighbour's garden like a lunatic, pouring a, the bucket of water over his head to, to, to drink anything that's cold. Uh, which made me think, blimey, that soapy water that he was. <laughs> yeah, that the desperate. He's desperate. <laughs> How it's, I'm just trying to, I wasn't convinced by the window cleaner's reaction to the chili he drank. I mean, when, when we eat, we've all been there, well, most of us have been there when we've consumed something that's hot, but it's just ridiculous have reaction. Like that's, again, although that's probably not pleasant, yeah. not entirely Victor's fault, is it? No, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, what I love about. One thing the grave is Renwick is meticulous and everything is always explained. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, his the extreme reaction that you could argue is explained by when Victor, I think, adds in an extra spoonful yeah. um, of the, the, the powder in there. Um, but it's a nice it's a nice piece of kind of what I call like physical character acting. Mm. Um, and it's very it's very visual. One thing the grave is all, often very, very visual. Um, whereas normally, you know, a lot of things, a lot of comedies, I think, would have the character screaming and that being the joke. Whereas us seeing him run around the garden, pouring water <laughs> down his throat and stuff is, is like an extra visual yeah. treat yeah. Um, that, that we get. Well, Pat, Pippa looks at Patrick at this moment as to say, yeah, you're right. Maybe they are a bit mental. Got a feel for the window. Maybe he's got this severe allergy to, to hot food and it's just given him such a bad reaction internally. Yeah, that's all I can think. But um, <laughs> now, is this the same day? I don't know, but we are in the Meldrew living room and we have a, a room full of gentlemen of similar age to Victor and they are all they all look like magic circle wannabes all in their tuxedo gear they look like they're rehearsing for an actual spot on a on a Paul Daniels magic show by the looks of it and they, they really are they really are a magic circle crossed with dad's army yeah. um you've got you've got all of them in there you got they're mostly sort of they look like blokes in their late 60s, early 70s. And Victor's, Victor's the only one who's not dressed up, I noticed. But he's the trick he was practicing in an earlier scene with the balloon head inside the hatch box. He is now trying this on one of his uh, pals. Um, I like to think they're his friends. I don't like to think Victor's been lonely. Um, but sure, they I'm look sure like... They, I mean... Yeah. They all, they've all known where he lives and they've all come dressed for the occasion. Yeah, uh, they've so all made like... the effort, apart from Victor, ironically. Victor is put, popping this uh, this box on top of his chap's head, and they're all looking. They're all waiting anxiously to see if the trick works. So I think it's that one where you put the box on someone's head, 
and put each side down individually and then put a, a sword through the middle and it goes through the box and the person remains alive, no blood. Wow, that's magic. I think it's probably a Houdini trick originally, I don't know. We as the audience have already seen this trick go wrong. Yeah. Um, so so, so once up. again, um, <laughs> with the audience is in on the joke before the characters, uh, and it's just got the most wonderful payoff at the end. Brilliant um, payoff, this isn't it? Renwick, who goes on to write Jonathan Creek, very much focuses on magic and i wonder if this is 93 so he might not have even thought of writing jonathan creek at this point because that's 97 so i just wonder if he thought that'd be good to centralize things around magic to a certain extent because it fits in with the but anyway just a little probably something obvious to say but I thought, yeah that's the first I, linking I, to creek, jonathan creek maybe and, and do you know what you're you're exactly right i mean i love i love jonathan creek as much as i love one foot in the grave um and i've never once made that link that victor yeah. has a hobby of conjuring yeah um, versus quite interesting, jonathan isn't it? creek as well he is you yeah. you're on to something there this moment that comes up now so just as he's about to play the place the sword into the box with the chap's head in there's a bit of build up i think it's like a bit of tension build up music just as he as he puts the sword in instantly the the scene switches to victor's index finger dialing 999 in the telephone box we forgot to mention that their telephone doesn't make outgoing calls yeah. i think that was probably written so it looked funnier the camera panning on on a telephone box keypad as opposed to a home telephone it wouldn't have worked with their handheld cordless so they can uh, take they can receive calls but they can't make calls so victor's had to go out into the street to make to dial 999 as the audience view under the impression oh god that's funny that he's had to yeah. call 999 it's gone wrong i think you know from, from a, a, a script and technical point of view so victor has to be out of the house so that margaret can make the mistake True. she's about to make yeah um, that, that's that's probably the actual exp explanation <laughs> but i also think it works better that because they I, I guess if they he, he had to call 999 inside they could still have focused his finger on the 999 button as well but yeah you are yeah. On the production side so he spots margaret spots victor from a distance with Mrs. Warboy's in the car, and he says it's old Mr. Hentstridge. Um, he's had a heart attack. To us, it's revealed it's nothing to do with being, anyone being stabbed in the head. It's a heart attack. So semi-relieved, but it's still not great. Someone's suffering with a heart attack. It looks like they've just had their lunch, because Margaret and Jean have been out to lunch. It looks like they've just finished lunch, or they're just about to whatever. So they speed off and go back to the Meldrews household, and Jean and Margaret walk into absolute chaos with a room full of the uh, Magic Circle men props everywhere a few pigeons or they look like doves to me they're white pigeons or the dove birds flying around it's absolutely manic margaret just wants everyone to leave none of them have an actual speaking part apart from the large gentleman who walks in got like a mexican mustache yeah it, it looks quite funny and that's played by do you know who that's played by i've made a note of it somewhere yeah i do so so that's played by a chap called simon fisher becker <laughs> that's right um who uh, i've been very lucky enough to meet actually uh i've got a I've, in all my years i've got a the richard weber one foot in the grave book uh, and every every time i meet somebody from the show i get them to sign it uh, and i met him it wasn't that long a couple of years ago because he's uh, he's he's had like uh, he's most famous for playing monsters in doctor who mm. um so all these conventions and stuff he often gets people getting doctor who stuff yeah. and he, he, he'd never 
never had anyone come up to him and sign or ask him to sign one foot in the grave stuff. And he told me this very short but great story. Um, he, he, said, he said to me, the only thing he can ever remember about that appearance on One Foot in the Grave uh, is that the rehearsal rooms in Acton, uh, he caught the lift. Uh, and as it got to the next floor, David Jason got in the lift. Um, of and where they filmed Ford, didn't it? And he exactly. And he had a small conversation with David Jason. Uh, and that's what he told me. He was his fondest memory that he could remember of appearing in One Foot in the Grave was he met David Jason. in. That's the incredible. Well, I also read, whether this is true, it was quote, quoted, but could easily be made up, that Simon Fisher-Becker said that nearly all of his role was cut. And he had the one line, so the scene we're talking about now, he just says something like, it's Mr. Hemstridge. We think it may be his heart. And at that point, Margaret sends them all out of the house. Well, I can't think what else, what other dialogue there would have been because none of those extras playing you know, Victor's magician friends say anything. So unless there's yeah, a whole that's... scene cut, they would have all had something cut. So I don't know. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, it's you know, that's you know, he was there, so it probably is true. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't. I wonder what else, what else would have been got. I don't know. I, th- I think it. it, it I would like to have seen a little bit before this, um, the accident of the heart attack, other tricks going wrong. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's something in the BBC archives where there was they had to take something out just for time constraints. But yeah, he there's... seems to be adamant that his whole speaking part was removed. Oh, apart from what we see and yeah i mean this is you know this is an odd scene and and this often makes you smile in tv programs obviously uh if if your extras have speaking lines you've got to pay them more so obviously you yeah. ideally want a room full of extras that don't speak and sometimes it's a bit odd and in this episode it's a bit odd because like all of this stuff is happening but none of them are no talking. speaking are they They're all uh, sort and of... it's yeah. It's really, it's quite a bizarre thing to see. You know, if, if that was, if that was real life, um, you know, one of them would go, well, no, 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 that's, it's not, that's not happened. It's this that's happened. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I love seeing kind of uh, talking actors ways around not allowing extras to talk. Uh, and in this case, kind of hurrying them out of the door. Um, they they and, all and, look like frightened schoolboys because they've got the raft of Margaret to deal with. Maybe they know a little bit about Margaret being quite feisty when she's uh, most um, annoyed. But nevertheless, true. they do, they chuck them all out. And again, more animals involved in one foot. More animals, we'll, we'll see a little bit more about the uh, outcome of one of the animals. But um, there's never an episode that goes by that there's no insect or animal. Well, they either exist or they don't. But um, they spot one of the who they believe to be Mr. Hemstridge, he spark out on the floor and Gene goes to perform some sort of CPR pathetically sort of pushes it against is, his yeah, chest. It is, it is indeed some sort of it's CPR. some sort. Um, <laughs> and as she's pressing down, she unbuttons his top of his shirt and there's a dead pigeon dove or yeah. whatever it is. That's quite sad. Yeah. I don't right. know if it's, it looks a very good prop. I wouldn't have thought it was real. See, I, looks... I, I think it is real. I, the, the, I think so. I think I got a feeling it is real um, just by the way it moves. But I think, I think we're assuming, or it's to be assumed that, that Mrs. Warboys has just killed a pigeon. Um, yeah, she's that's... pressed down and, and actually, yeah, it could be. I don't know if it was just a trick that went wrong that the poor thing suffocated or she's just finished it off. It could be either, couldn't it? Your guess is good as mine. But um, she goes to continue the CPR and she's given mouth to mouth. And as she blows down, it's not slapstick humour, but it's it's kind of carry-on humour, isn't it? Where yes. there's a bulge in his private area, which Margaret spots, uh, inflates every time Mrs. Warboys blows into <laughs> yeah. his mouth. Margaret very delicately unbuttons his, um, his zip, and there's a live pigeon that flies out. 
I mean, the audience love that joke. The, the laughter that comes from the audience there it gets distorted where it's so loud. Um, and, you know, they... It's like a laugh of the summer wine type moment, isn't it? Yeah, that it kind is. Of like rudeness. You know, no matter how clever your joke is, uh, you know, once you know below the waist, gentleman's area is involved. Uh, the audience love it. They love um, it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, it just it's know. just a British thing, isn't it? Anything toys humour or or similar. Exactly. Um, we've got a soft spot for it, haven't we? Exactly. Um, but anyway, who they perceive to be Mr. Henstridge props them up. He's sort of he's he's got a bit of life back in him, and they yeah. So they help him out of the house, and they put him in the back garden. He's not really with it, is he? So he's calling the ambulance, and they're waiting for that. And meanwhile, we see poor window cleaner still present in the house in the downstairs bathroom, clutching his belly. He needs to go back into the toilet again. This happens quite a few times in one foot, where an outside character is still involved in the scene, like. Well, it's not even an outside character. It was, do you remember the episode where Mr. Sweeney done his back in trying to fix yeah. the plumbing to send into the Maelstrom episode? And he'd done his yeah, back yes, in and yes. he's still there like pretty much half the day into the night. And Victor walks in on him in the middle of the night when he goes to get a drink in the fridge. And he, he's very clever bit of writing because yeah. we forget about them, don't we? Yeah, and it's and you know, there's in every one foot in the grave episode, as well as um as Jonathan Creek as well, like every episode starts with like about five or six different threads that go through the episode and, and the, the window cleaner is one thread. And you're right, by this point, no matter how many times I watch this, you forget, we, for, you? we forget about the window cleaner. Genius um writing. It's, it's super and it's like it's always on the exact level where we've just forgotten yeah. um, that you then get reminded of it and it's yeah. it's you know this is here because it, it it you know it this joke continues through the episode it's one of those little threads that just keeps reappearing well, um, it's, absolutely, it's just marvelous it's absolutely marvelous that scene ends so we've we've left the the living room and margaret and jean have taken this is mr hemstridge this is how we've been introduced to him he sat in the garden. Victor comes back inside just after the cleaner window cleaner's gone back into the downstairs toilet. Victor in an absolute panic. You know, was he dead? Oh, you know, he's he's quite apologetic about the situation. I love how Victor said when he said, "Is he dead?" I'm just about ready to join him. Margaret just wants some sort of peace and harmony. She sends Victor on his way just to start a shift because he's about to, you know, again another reason why Renwick's written him into a job because he doesn't need Victor for this scene. Otherwise, the joke later on won't work but victor leaves the house um, he's quite apologetic and he's on his way gene and margaret quite clever really they've got this huge net to uh capture the bird so they just start off at the edge of the uh, living room entry and just go in we assume they they deal with the mess there's a moment where i think victor very nearly traps a poor dove in the door um and, oh. I, and i'm and I know, you know, from again, from reading, I think Richard Weber's book, uh, Annette Crosby hated she's using a, animals. Yeah, she, I read that. She's not. Um, yeah, because they get know, a lot of stick as actors. They, some of the general public, a bit naive to think that they get some enjoyment out of, you know, having animals on set, and and yeah, think they've, you know, they're not the writer or the director. They're just doing their job. Yeah. Um, yes, they could not do the job, but it's just one occasion out of all the years they'll ever do of acting yeah, where of they've course. got to sometimes deal with livestock. Exactly. You know, it's, you know, it's... Even, even back then, uh, as much as it is now, I think, you know, a, a lot of actors have gone on record saying the animals have got more 
rights than they have yeah um better welfare than they have yeah and you know it's just one of those things and and, and i've always said you can always kind of tell that annette is a little bit careful with the animals even in that scene where where one nearly gets trapped in the door you 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 actually see her kind of like reaching to keep the door open in like a yeah. little moment where she's she's realized the problem it's any time um, richard wilson is trying to duck and dive and avoid a, a problem he's very funny at like he's quite a gangly tall bloke and when he's trying to when he opens the living room door mark goes don't open that you know you said the pigeon flies out very funny it's sort of his physical movement is funny he's just got a natural yeah. ability and it, it just yeah. works very well there's a great moment uh on one of the because on the dvd box set i think they there's a commentary on a couple of episodes uh and on one of the first ones the i think it's i think it's richard wilson and david renwick richard watches himself and he goes my god look at my posture how <laughs> on earth did i make that posture uh and i think he's just a great kind of physical actor he knows yeah. He knows the limits of his body uh, yeah. and how he can kind of contort it to make it do all these. Incredible... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's brilliant. Um, yeah, he's he is perfect for the role. Um, well, we see Victor at work. I think it's the f- this might be the first time we see Victor in a job for our own eyes since he was made redundant. I don't recall him. I'm just trying to think now. Has he done any other job that we actually see? No, I think uh, this might be the first. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, or, I don't or know my where it comes in. See, where's the what's the one where he's the scarecrow? Is that happened yet, or is that later? Is that later? Might be. Star ah, Bound. yes, it is. It is um, Starbound. Yeah, there's a little scene here where the, the children after school are laying flowers and wreaths at the um, in memory of uh, Bertie, the predecessor that's tragically lost his life. And it, it kind yeah. of, if it, obviously in that moment, Victor's probably recollecting what. Mr. Swaney had told him, and it just brings a bit of fear of life into him, thinking, what the blimmin' hell? It's still a mystery to him, and the, and the kids are absolutely devastated as they cross the road. Yeah. In in that moment, there's like a, Mr. Swaney turns up, in a, I don't, I'm not a petrol head, but there's some old banger that even for 93 <laughs> looks ancient. So so I love classic cars, and the worse the classic car, the more I love it. So Mr. Swaney here is driving a 1979 Austin Allegro Mark II. Um, I think Allegro, Allegro has gone down in british history is one of the ugliest cars ever produced it's like um, a, so at the time sort of 14 or 15 years old it was relatively old back then but yeah, yeah. even more so but it's and, just a sort of car you can imagine him drive it it fits his personality nothing yeah, exactly. too flash it's, nothing exactly. flash at all actually it's mundane and it does the job. Um, yeah, mundane is perfect. Interestingly, so we do see Mr. Sweeney driving his Austin Allegro, I think in series one, in the first episode, I think, when he gives Victor a lift. Was it broken um, down, was it? Yeah, uh, yeah. the one, yeah. Um, and it's, this is actually a completely different Allegro uh, that they must have sourced for the production. Yeah. Um, and if you really want me to get super nerdy, <laughs> this Allegro lasted until 1995 when it's probably just been scrapped. Um, that's incredible so it, knowledge it did survive a few years uh you can thank google for that one okay um, well still i didn't think to to look that up there there is a reason i'm mentioning this that we'll get on to in a minute yeah sure um, sure <laughs> so mr sweeney uh calls out to victor to say that all is fine um this mr hendridge who we've seen gene and, and margaret try to comfort and sort of you know bring a bit of life back into collapse in the back seat but everything is apparently fine according to the hospital he's had a checkup everything's okay which at this point victor is a bit perplexed this isn't mr henstrange this is mr matthews he hasn't got a weak heart but this is the chap your wife asked me to take down the hospital we as the audience up to this point have been a little misled up until now this mr matthews has not got a weak heart he just yeah he just fainted 
but he goes on to say... He asked us to chain him up inside, said it escaped in 30 seconds flat. After 10 minutes, it all went quiet. Then Mr. Gridley found he had lost the key, and Mr. Matthews here passed out from shock. <laughs> I told him to keep searching where I went for an ambulance. And Mr. Gridley, another, another comical name, Gridley. That sounds funny. Lost the keys, which at that point, Mr. Matthews, who is who's not Mr. Hendricks, Mr. Matthews, who's in the car with Mr. Sweeney, he had passed out. So the penny doubly drops for Victor because he's just realised that no one has thought to check the trunk. He, he knows that, he, he realised that Margaret and Jean thinks the person who's had the heart attack is person in the car yep. and it of course isn't and, and it's the, great it's great that the audience is included in that you know up until like this that. point i think because there's at one point before this scene there's a shot uh just after uh the the apparent mr henson uh leaves mm. the room there's a shot a close-up of the trunk yeah so, so with the audience know something well, is right i thought i don't know what because i think when i first watched this i wouldn't have really taken that on board been a young lad at the time and watched it several times since but why don't we figure out that there's probably something going because whenever any it's a classic trope in tv and film when they focus on something for more than a couple of seconds it matters yeah um and i don't think they needed to, i'm surprised they did that because i renwick and belbin they're too it seems beneath them to be that obvious but it wasn't because it obviously fooled me and most of the audience, yeah. well, I don't want to say everyone, but there's someone out there would have been gone, would have been smart if, enough to know that they it didn't fall. If you go back and watch that scene, it's very cleverly filmed because the trunk is always in shot. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a trick that he carried over to Jonathan Creek. I would say if you go and watch Jonathan yeah. Creek, uh, then rewind back to the first five minutes, they normally tell you exactly how it was done or you see the clue, yeah. you see how it was done. And this is exactly the same. It all same ties way. together well, doesn't it? It all ties together perfectly. So how many hours has Mr. Henstridge been in there? Uh, I can't, he does say, but I can't remember. He's been in there now for five bloody hours. <laughs> Absolutely horrifying. Firstly, what I'd say is, I mean, Victor previously, he's, got, he's rushed back from the making the telephone call. I think you would say, in reality, yeah, so just to, just to, just to clarify, he's in that box. We can't get him out. This is the... But he doesn't. So it's, yeah. a, it's I'm not going to call it a plot hole, but it just seems a little... Again, we've got license to critique everything about this show, even though it's, it's pretty much perfect. We're going to go, what would happen in real life? You'd go, oh, okay, I've got work, but there is a guy in that box. I'm, he's Mr. Hendridge. I've told you about Mr. Hendridge and his weak heart. He's in that box. We've lost the key. You would say, yeah. you know, it's a comedy. Yeah, yeah. I, keep, I say this every time. <laughs> You know, I know it's a comedy. There's, it's it's written with intent to mislead, but um, I just find it bizarre. He wouldn't go. Just so you know, there's a trunk in there with a possible <laughs> dead body. But there you go. Um, exactly, exactly. But you know, that's the joy of <laughs> the joy of um, the joy of a script is that you yeah. can say and do what you want. <laughs> Lots going on in this day. We're now uh, back at the Meldrews, evening time. Patrick and Pippa nervously sort of stood up with a nice uh, selection of nibbles on a coffee table. Victor and Margaret aren't anywhere to be seen at this moment. Patrick wonders what the, the cheese selection is and Pippa points out what they are. And he picks, um, Patrick picks up a, a tray of something and it turns out to be an ashtray, apparently. I just wonder, is, is it an ashtray and why, is the Meldrews have, why do they have an ashtray? 
but he, I kind he, of I kind of presume one of Victor's uh, conjuring friends was a smoker. Uh, indoors, I, I indoors presumed. though, would 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 Victor allow that? I don't know. I don't. Oh, um, I don't know. But there's pigeon droppings. We suspect. Patrick suspects. He's very clever to uh, identifying what pigeon crap smells like. <laughs> he does. He does. But, He's um, enough practice. We will have enough practice in the future anyway. Pippa does sort of threaten to him in a way that, you know, you better pipe down because, you know, I'll chuck all this food in your face. And she's just trying to play the weirdness down. She knows there's weird stuff going on. She doesn't want him to like flip. Yeah. And again, a bit like seeing the window cleaner out of their window going crazy. He goes to sit down on the settee and he finds a sword down the back and he's very careful not to be too sarcastic about it. He just places it back. I don't think that's weird. It's a dangerous object to have down the back of the sofa. I don't know. I don't know if Patrick and Pippa are aware that Victor has uh, a conjuring hobby. He's part yeah. of a, a, not a magic circle, but if they if they had that I, that um, bit of knowledge, they might not be surprised there's a, a sword. But if they don't yeah. know, then it does look weird. It's so frustrating. It, God. it does. I mean, it's one of those things, uh, as we said, I think earlier, you know, there's a completely perfectly innocent explanation for yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, it's always Patrick and Pippa just come in right at the end when it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's weirdest or unfolding. Um, so frustrating. On the same set, in the same scene, unrelated to Patrick and Pippa, Mrs. Warboys is seen to the door. So she's obviously been with Margaret. It's one of the very few times Mrs. Warboys and the trenches have been together but they've not interacted. Yeah, had... do we ever... I mean, I on my notes here, I've written, we never see Mrs. Warboys in the trenches together. No, which is, which, which is, like, you know, to us it's bizarre, but Patrick and Pippa are just neighbours of Victor Margaret. You know, friends of my fiancé and I, They our neighbours aren't going to know them. So the, why yeah. should, yeah, you yeah. know, but obviously from a sitcom point of view, it's just funny. Like Mr. Swainy and Mrs. Warboys have had a tiny bit of interaction, and yeah. Pippa and... Mr. Sweeney had a very brief bit of dialogue in uh, Who Will Buy? Yes, yes, The ventriloquist uh, um, uh, scene. Yep. But other than that, it's just they they rarely do. But anyway, Mrs. Warboys has seen to the door. She needs to go home to phone the private investigator for an update. And Margaret assures her everything will be fine. Don't worry. And this time, Margaret is entertaining Patrick Pippa alone. Now, this happened when Patrick Pippa made their first appearance in Who's Listening? It was Victor who was on his own waiting for Margaret. I can't remember where she was, but this time it's Margaret sort of wondering where Victor is. Uh, he's, he's on his, his way back. Patrick continues to sulk a little bit about what they'll be faced with tonight. You know, obviously when when Margaret leaves the room, gets more and more regretful that he's there. There we hear a groan and a moan. Spending an evening at the Munsters coming around here. <laughs> nameless horror you're going to come across next. <laughs> Sounds funny because there's a bit of bit of reverb, bit of an echo to this moan. Yeah, and he. I think, he, I think he, it gets spoiled slightly. So I think the audience laugh over a bit of the mumbling, and it's not to me, yeah. uh, to me at least. Um, 
I mean, I mean, when I when I my first experience of most one foot in the grave episodes was on DVD. I never saw them on TV. Um, I would go into like Woolworths and buy the DVDs yeah. for fourteen ninety nine as they were back mm. then. Um, and you know, and and sometimes the jokes are lost because of the audience laughter. And I think this is kind of one of those things where they they the audience laughter muffles the groan and it doesn't quite make sense straight away. Yeah. Um, but obviously, it becomes rapidly apparent as, yeah. as to what that what that joke is. Yeah. Well. Trust Patrick to have spotted this. Pippa, you know, does he describe her as a witless woman because she thinks he's yes. joking? But what is she hearing? Like, to us, to Patrick, it's quite obvious there's a noise coming from somewhere. Yeah. Pippa sort of laughs it off. Maybe she's, again, she's trying everything she can to keep Patrick away from possible weirdness because just, she just wants to make peace. Yeah. And she Poor knows Pippa. that he'll freak out. But, um, they're interrupted by Margaret. She reappears in the living room and they are looking really freaked out. They kind of got their backs to the door and they're trying to not very subtly leave, which seems a bit bizarre. Yeah. And the, I think the phone rings at this point and the answer machine does kick in pretty quickly because they've got issues with their telephone. And I wonder if it's the, if it's the answer machine. Margaret's late mum left them. I don't know. But of course, yeah. yeah. A very <laughs> Victor leaves a message. inaudible these states it's, i don't know why it's taken him until that point to ring because when he's discovered through mr swaney the cock up the mix-up that's clearly because kids finish school about half three don't they four yes now unless this is winter time it's very it's, it's a dark it feels like it's night time and it's evening and you're invited for tea around seven so i wonder yeah. why it's taken until now to ring i mean because I, I also made a note of that, that the timing doesn't make sense. I think perhaps they'd taken Mr. Matthews back home first. Obviously, he was in Mr. Sweeney's car. I think they've taken Mr. Matthews home first, then dropped him off. Then now Victor's coming back and he's calling him from, uh, from yeah, Mr. Sweeney's car. Yeah, I guess. But even a then. A mobile phone and, and he might not have had any change to make a phone call. It's been a couple of hours. But he's calling yeah. to say, he's revealing what's actually happened. There's a, basically a body in that. So Mr. Hemstridge is in that trunk. And do you know what? That's the first time it's something has been explained to Patrick indirectly. Yeah. Because surely Patrick and Pippa realise there's there's a mix. You know, through Victor's panic, he realised, you know, he must realise that this is a misunderstanding from Victor's point of view. And I love how he says, quickly get, you know, try and get the trunk open for that gormless twerp and her husband to come round. So he's insulting Pippa now. <laughs> so, you know, he's, Referring to her as a gormous twerp and her husband. He's actually not yeah. insulted Patrick. 
yeah but i mean and, and you know this is this is my point that i was making earlier my nerdy point this is like my my point of the night and it's such a a, a petty point no way on earth does mr sweeney's 1979 allegro have a car phone uh Did he say that, no way he? he says he's talking on mr sweeney's car phone that's why it cuts out oh. um <laughs> can you not so, install could you not install that kind of thing into a classic car I think you probably could, but it's it's unlikely, especially back in the uh, kind of mid nineties. Unless he um, had an old brick phone, he just kept in there, and he just refers to it as a car phone. Possibly, possibly. I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, clutch at straws, <laughs> on I? Whose side are you on? Yeah, exactly. No, I'm on your side. <laughs> there's, 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 there's the odd plot hole. I think the timeline is bizarre. I love people to get in, in touch to explain. Of it. course. I mean, explain I would them. like to point out. I'd be the first to point out. You know, I don't really care about these plot holes. I love just laughing at it. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, we don't really it's, dwell it's on just, too much. Do we? It's just great fun. Margaret is absolutely panicking. Patrick even goes to help out. He goes to phone the emergency services as Pippa and Margaret try to unlock the trunk. And as Patrick dials. <laughs> He hears yet more groaning. This time it's from the downstairs bathroom. And we've been done again. Yep. Because this is clearly, we Patrick doesn't know, but we know, the audience know, it's um, the window cleaner who's been stuck, still stuck in that downstairs toilet. Um, it is, it's, it's that final thread now. that it's, they're all, all, the, all the threads are weaving together <laughs> to build to the finale. Uh, but you're right, we've been done again. We've forgotten. We've forgotten once again. You, you, uh, thought, you thought after the first time, yeah, he's definitely left now. Like Margaret would have heard at one point. You'd think he'd have, the window cleaner would have um, gone home by now, but he's been there all day. He's been there since lunch without yeah. Margaret. It's a good job they got two bathrooms, otherwise that joke wouldn't work, because at one point they would have used the bathroom. Uh, that means they've gone upstairs to use the toilet. If I'm, I got downstairs. I'll use the downstairs toilet if I can. If I'm downstairs, but well, I'm being very um, nitpicky there. But <laughs> somehow he's got away been there all day. See again, I think it goes back to that generational thing. I think it's you know my again. I use my nan, bless her. Um, she's got two bathrooms. Never once does she use the downstairs one. She'll walk all the way upstairs. To go. I think. Yeah. I think it's a generational thing. I think. Yeah, I think I think you could be right. Maybe I'm guilty of going all the way upstairs to use a slightly better bathroom than the downstairs colder <laughs> one. That's right, yeah. honestly. So in years of you know bathroom experience, um, the downstairs one is always colder. No it matter is, where you are, it's always colder. No matter yeah. what house. I can't. I don't get it because I got quite in, good insulation in my house, and I I can never understand. I mean, as a side note, no one's going to care about this, but the, we we switched the radiator off in the downstairs because it doesn't make a difference really so it's wasting <laughs> electricity um or we're gas central heating technically or we just think well, we may as well switch it off because it doesn't make a blind bit of difference it's the, it's seeping out somewhere we're not going to yeah, pay yeah. to get it sorted god that's so <laughs> not interesting to any not even no, you know, not there, i mean there's like there's like an interesting point to the downstairs bathroom because uh, and you might have brought this up before on a previous one uh the house they use in uh bournemouth for victor and margaret's house uh they actually had to fit uh, a fake window for that bathroom window because the actual house yeah. doesn't have it there it's been um, brought up before actually by a few people i, I didn't, I didn't been... really read into it. i think yeah because you don't see it on the outside do you you don't see a window yeah, for right. it but you do from and the I, internal shot 
I see people on like Facebook uh, and some of the forums and things visiting the house, and they go, they removed the downstairs bathroom, but it was never there to start yeah, with. Exactly. Well, <laughs> have you ever course. been? Have you ever visited? I've not. The I've been encouraged. I'm not that yeah, far same. from Bournemouth. I mean, you're you're Bristol, and I'm yeah, I'm, I'm quite far. I'm closer technically. I'm near I, Bath, so oh, okay. I should I I should do. I mean, I've, oh, I for full. I mean, I've been to Ashton Gate and uh, flats there. I went to Acton. To, to the original Trotter, uh, to Nelson Mandela House on the day, went to watch the musical. But yeah. I've never visited other location shots of other comedies. I've never yeah, thought to for one foot because it's, for some reason, it doesn't appear, it's not as iconic as Nelson Mandela House. Yeah. It's, it's a very normal suburban house. True. It's, True. It's a very, it doesn't seem that inviting, but I wouldn't, I, I didn't really have a reason not to because I'm only about an hour and a half from filming location so i i haven't got much of an excuse not to yeah so i mean i'm always i'm always looking for an excuse to go there uh yeah. i mean in, in my job i lucky i get to travel up and down the country uh but never once do i ever get to go near there where i can do a quick diversion I I went, one day i will i went well me and a couple of mates drove bloody two and a half three hours to you'll know where it's at this location but jonathan creek's windmill uh yes yes i do i've never been there myself either it used to be um, open to the public you used to be able to go in have a talk because they everything was filmed there. It's not like even it's set. It's, it's amazingly to my, I didn't know, but yeah, they they generally filmed all the interior shots there. So it is. Oh, did they really? Oh, I didn't know that either. Used, wow. Yeah, they used to have open days, pay a couple of quid, you could have a tour. But when we went there, some miserable bloke. I don't think he owned. I think he was upkeeping the property, but it was it, we weren't allowed to go near it. We just viewed it. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, sorry. That's... Um. But yeah, um, sorry, Elizabeth, I've got a car horn beeping outside. I didn't. I wonder what it's not. It was it's like. not. It's not the fire brigade, is it? It's not the fire brigade. No, I can promise. Sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> so all right. Yes, hello. Could you put me through to the fire brigade, please? <laughs> somebody here call us. <laughs> well, the scene rounds up nicely with, of course, yet another fire brigade call out. Patrick has seen three things here. He's he's witnessing an almost dead body in a trunk, a strange noise coming from the downstairs bathroom, and now, out of nowhere, he's he's calling the fire brigade, and they've called in on him instantly. Probably the fifth time this has happened to the Meldrews. Ridiculous. The the joke continues. They've got to take every call seriously, so they're not going to assume it's a prank. Of course, of course. But would they break down? Well, I don't think that's the protocol for the fire brigade, but it works for comedy. Just they just smash open the. <laughs> The front door um, with an axe and they, they enter they do and you know interestingly as well uh, so we don't have uh, chris walker playing this fireman he's played the fireman in every bit so far that's right um, it's a different guy it's I, a different I, guy and i can only presume it's because of the stunt with the axe through the through the door i suspect he's probably a stuntman rather than an actor um it's the only reason i could assume for that because it's a bit odd to have the thread of the same actor in every single one um apart from this one is that vince lee then who i thought uh, could well be yeah could well he's be he's an actual actor you could have you, actors are can be trained stuntmen as well so it's not yeah. impossible, in office, it? it's not you know this isn't some kind of tom cruise mission impossible stunt it's whacking an axe through a door so i suspect i suspect some actors could do that yeah um, but but yeah you know you might be right that might be who imdb is saying it is an actor i hadn't even uh, hadn't even thought about that you're good you're good you are <laughs> yeah end to the scene if Patrick was already uptight about his views on the Meldrews. <laughs> you can't blame him from his point of view, but again, he doesn't know the background to it. 
not even the Meldridge, you know, there's some window cleaning in their downstairs bog, sat on the toilet, the mix up with the person in the trunk. I'm going to say that is Victor's fault because you just <laughs> tell Margaret, try and get that trunk open as, as much because he's got a dicky heart. We need to do everything we can whilst the fire brigade come out. True. So that is True. actually, I'm going to say, I can't side with Victor. <laughs> he, he could have said something very um, true patrick we can empathize with his predicament of i don't want to be in this weird place i don't know what's going on but yeah that that brings an end to that scene final scene in the restaurant i don't think it's the same restaurant as in warm champagne where margaret met with ben but it looks similar but the lighting is not as darkly lit compared to margaret's date it's established that victor and margaret are taken out gene and chris to help them tie up their relationship. So they're very much playing, not playing Cupid, but they're sort of very much involved with trying to bring yeah. their marriage up together because Jean yeah. is just struggling, isn't she? And, and Victor back in on, in on set to say he's tried to call the War Boys residents, but no one's there, so they must be on their way. And apparently um, a bit of background to Mr. Henstridge or a bit of an update even, he's okay. Back His back's a bit out of shape, but everything's fine. So uh, a, a happy ending for Mr. Henstridge, which is good because this is a dark sitcom and yeah. you know, could have easily died. Mrs. Warboys enters. She does not have Chris, her husband. We still um, haven't met Chris and we're definitely not going to meet him now because he'd given her a lift on his way to the office to collect some things. This makes me think that half his life is spent in the office, so he's going to move away. I don't know. But yeah. apparently things are over. Mrs. Warboys is quite for the first time, calm and composed and how she updates them and what's going on, which is quite pleasing, really. She discovered he was having an affair. So it was true. In the end, that woman next door but one? Oh, oh no, no, no. Of course it wasn't. That was me just barking up the wrong tree, as usual. Who's he moving in with? That's the worst part of it all, I'm afraid. The private detective. <laughs> He spotted her after the first couple of days following him around. They got chatting. He said it was silly of them to keep taking two cars everywhere when they could both go and use. <laughs> Seems they just hit it off together straight away. Here is the most fantastic roundup of joke telling because she was completely wrong about the, uh, the neighbour. Yeah. What, was, what was the lady's name again? Did they mention it? Uh, no, I don't, do, I don't think they do name her, I don't think. I remember. I can't um, remember either. I don't think they do, because I think I would have written it down. You yeah, I just, I, I, I thought, just in case. But anyway, so it's not the lady who lives two doors down who's having an affair with husband Chris. It was, in fact, the private investigator, which is very ironic and very cruel, um, essentially brought on by Mrs. Warboys. Through sheer yep. paranoia and curiosity, she's unintentionally led the pathway for her husband to leave her. Yep. And it was obviously meant to be because things happen. It's bizarre as it sounds. He clearly wasn't happy with Mrs. Warboys, and um, she never appeared to be with him. Um, well, I'm sure she was, but she just never really spoke of him. So yeah, I mean, you know, this um, it's, a, it's a funny round off. There's lots of lots of um, gags in this. 
for yeah, there is. Know, more than usual. Lots of yes. tie-ups in there. So, Which is, you know, at the beginning, I said to me, this isn't an episode that's that's, that's that memorable. Um, but it's so joke-heavy. There's a lot of stuff going on in this episode that mm. I don't know why that's the case. But yeah. even, you know, that, that part of the end where it's discovered that it's the private detective that's having the affair, even that itself plays, you know, uh, all throughout this, we, we assume that the private detective was a man. Um, this is it, yeah. This and, is, and, we, and it plays on, it, you know, once again, Renwick has tricked us by just being a little bit clever uh, that, you know, it's, it's, that it's actually a, a woman uh, and yeah. she's, she's now having the affair. And then, you know, once yeah. again, poor Mrs. Warboys. Briefly recounts how Chris and, and this private detective got together. He'd spotted her after the first couple of days, checking check in on him, and he chatted, uh, chatted her up, essentially, and they just hit it off. And what was the, the private detective utterly useless to say the least to be that weak <laughs> poor gene um, cho- choosing the worst private detective yeah. as well um, it, it wouldn't it would have been a friend of a friend who calls himself a private de- private detective just someone that's probably. nosy basically and that's that and, and victor is actually she gets she goes to get a tissue out of her bag and i noticed she was clutching the stripy pillowcase still yeah and victor for once is the voice of reason one thing you could be sure about in life just when you think that things are never ever going to get better, they suddenly get worse. <laughs> trying to trying to be positive, and he ends up being quite unhelpful. It's not helpful in the slightest, but he is trying to play yeah. down the fact that these things and happen, these things in life happen, and it's nothing, nothing to. You know. But she has just broke up with her husband, so actually, it's um, it's a bigger deal than that, Victor. But nevertheless, yeah. You know, and um, it's the same thing. I think you know, Victor at heart is a nice person, and he's mm. he's trying to offer some words of encouragement yeah. um, in a way that only Victor Meldrew can. And he's just trying to lift the mood. And in that moment, you know, he's basically saying nothing can get worse than it is now. And there's a huge leak in the roof, and the whole place, the whole restaurant that is, is it's showering with with water. Everyone leaves the restaurant. Margaret. And Jean just do not look bothered. They're 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 that in the zone with the depressing news. Victor is <laughs> Richard Wilson's sort of <laughs> even sat down looks gangly and, and awkward as he's you know that you know when if you're in the cold shower and you sort of freeze. I'm showing yeah. you like you can see in the milk and but you sort of freeze and he just looks so <laughs> ridiculous. And of course for the I think for the fourth time this episode, seventh time overall, the firefighters of course turn up. <laughs> And that brings the end to um very slapsticky visual humor episode. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in this one. A lot of threads that all mm. kind of weave in and out and, and you know, even the window cleaner, um the window cleaner thread doesn't particularly get resolved, but you know, Victor and Margaret have they have no idea that that's happened. That's like a little it's, private, yeah. that's a private joke for us watching it. Um, Margaret and Victor will live the rest of their lives not knowing that happened necessarily, but we as the audience do. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, unless Patrick says, you know you've got someone in your downstairs car, <laughs> don't you? But he doesn't, he doesn't ever really speak up. He just lets the situation be weird in his world. He don't, yeah. never says, although well, he probably doesn't want to be nosy, but he never goes, um, can I just ask, what... what <laughs> saw down the back of this sofa is that you, you know i would probably would mention something if i knew the neighbors well enough yeah you just met them for the first time you wouldn't you probably wouldn't but yeah. they've lived together for a, what a year or so now i don't yeah. know what how long 
officially. Long yeah, yeah. enough to want to sell the house, obviously. It's still an amazing episode. It probably isn't as strong as, as others, but a lot's going on. Lot, I mean, I think it makes up for the previous episode, The Trial, where it was just a one-man show. It's yeah. like the opposite end of the scale where you've got every single cast member. Mr. Sweeney, yeah. The Trenches, Victor, Margaret, Mrs. Warboys, a couple of cameo roles from random actors. I mean, this one, you know, what, like, I mean, I, you know, I have, I, I don't work for the BBC, I've, I don't work in TV production or anything, but it's a common theme I've always noticed. So every sitcom going has what I call like the loner episode where the characters are alone or they're trapped somewhere. And it's in, and very often what I believe is that those episodes exist because they have to pay for a more expensive episode later. And yeah. this one I think must have been quite an expensive episode because we've got extra sets being made, the cafe and the restaurant. Yeah. Um, and obviously the restaurant set gets destroyed because there's water involved in that. Yeah, you've yeah. got, a, there's lots of extra extras. You've got yeah. to pay all the extras in the magician scene, the cafe scene, the fireman. So I think the trial probably existed out of necessity to mm. pay for a more expensive episode like this one. I expect that's I at least s- partly to do with it, but Susie Belvin was desperate for, uh, for, Raymond to write a solo episode, so right. it probably worked out all, all round. But um, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. So this aired March the seventh, ninety three. This is the final episode of the series, but the episode that will precede this will be a comic relief special in twelfth of March ninety three. That was aired, Victor in the Bath, which I'll review with Nikki coming up, who's been on before. And then we'll have the One Foot in the Algarve special, which I'm very much looking forward to. But just to reflect on this episode, it's nice that Victor's got regular hobby with people of similar age like i said already interesting to see all the supporting cast in one episode there's about a nine yeah. month gap between now and one foot in the algarve because it's a christmas special yep christmas specials where the episode where that special is filmed in the summer just never sits right with me. i don't see it as a christmas special <laughs> as far as i just assumed algarve was released in the spring or summer yeah, it was, true. it was Christmas Day, I think. It was yeah. a great, that was that great trend back then as well for doing those like big movie style Christmas specials, yeah. like with Fools and Horses, Miami, Miami Twice. twice. Yeah. Um, and there was a kind of that trend for doing that. And it's, mm. kind of, it's like the trend like back in the 70s of where they made sitcoms into feature films. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a trend that kind of yeah. happened there. And then, um, then they released like a prequel film or a spin off. Yeah. Uh, possibly as a Christmas special as well. And then series five will be another year after the Algarve, so quite a relatively long break. There wasn't too much in the Richard Webber book about this episode that I could see. Yeah, I think... I don't, in fact, I, mean, I don't think it's even referenced... Not it's, specifically for this episode, is it? Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. It's Like I said, it's one of those episodes that I think is a little... I, I personally I, I find this episode a bit disjointed mm. um, you know Victor's got a job that's not referenced he it harks back to his conjuring tricks from series one um, and there's just a few kind of bits where it's just a bit disjointed um, from the series as a whole it, there's some themes there that don't kind of particularly yeah. carry on um, yeah. but you know that, that opening scene of Victor laughing at Mrs. Warboys <laughs> <laughs> Uh, probably well, the highlight of the episode to me that that's that is the Brilliant. pure highlight of the episode yeah yeah um, you can i just love that the mystery of mrs Warboy's husband has always been present but i think you can just picture around with thinking wouldn't it be funny if uh i wrote this joke where she thinks she's having a um an affair 
and hires a private investigator, they end up having a, he, she loses yeah. him to the person she's hired, and he's written that as a subplot. I mean, to you, marvelous. to you, does uh, to me that that kind of that revelation with the with Mrs. Warboy's husband that doesn't feel to me like such uh, like such an important gag or such an important issue. I've kind of I've almost lost interest at that point in that I, you know, we we've started to care more about the man in the trunk um, and you know the yeah. other goings on the window cleaner. And to me, I kind of forget about the Mrs. Warboy's thing. Yeah, um, to me that's to me that's not such a it's not kind of like a, a thunderclap of an ending. It's not like the great joke that I think it's no. supposed to be. But that might just be me being a bit kind of Victor. Um, Could be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you... it's it's just it's um, an ironic joke, and he's decided to write it into yeah. her, her her character arc, and that's about it. But um, nothing will be mentioned again of her ex, other than the fact that she seemingly doesn't live in a big house in the future. Because I'm sure we see only her. Bed, a flooded bedroom yeah we do and it doesn't seem like five. a large bedroom in that huge house that she lives in yeah um yeah, that we true. see in worst horror of all that's it yes worst horror of all. i know that there's uh the I, I don't know if this is might be too late for me um there was the the press the news thing of a new one from the grave book and possible stage show yeah i tweeted about that that's, that's just music to my ears i think it's um <laughs> david who I, who I had on mentioned there was a, a novel one from the grave yeah. script novel from which went under the radar as far as i'm concerned i didn't know about it but it's an extension of that plus the stage show which will be just like futility of the fly as far as i'm concerned where oh, okay well that's how i imagine it to be because yes they act out that the cleaner doesn't she acts out what yeah that's right which from her point of view but that's that's brilliant i look forward to hearing more about that in the future same can't wait so there'll be a short break between this episode and the next where i'll just do a it will be it will be a short episode reviewing the comic relief special from 93 because it's only about barely 10 minutes long so i'll have nicky on for that but i'd like to thank you andrew for taking part you're so very welcome i've had a blast thank you so much very insightful and um you'd be welcome on again i mean i've got a lot of people booked in for most episodes now but i'll be doing a separate episodes alongside you know what's the chronologically discussed ones if you'd like to get in touch it's one foot in the podcast at gmail.com my twitter is at one foot in the pod active on the facebook one foot in the grave forums so yeah get in touch and i just thank you very much for uh, listening and for your reviews andrew thank you uh, once again and best of luck with the auctioneering uh, is there anything in the pipeline for big big sellers what's the gandhi's glasses recently was it 260k yeah, that's right. Just over a quarter of a million pounds for Gandhi's Crazy. glasses. Uh, we've always got lots of stuff coming out. There's some stuff in the pipeline I can't tell you about, but no, it's, there's, it's, there's always something exciting happening. So keep your eyes yeah. peeled. One foot in the grave script, etc. If you could love accept to. some of my bids, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> um, just say, just pretend that they're the highest bid. But no, brilliant. Lovely to have you on. Next week will be Comet Relief episode of Victor in the Bath. Uh, take care, everyone. Andrew. Thank you very much. I think I. I just might kill myself. <laughs> <laughs>